Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. She was fun, she was just a really, really fun girl, lovely girl. We were close, yeah, because there was just like the two years between us, so we were very close. On the 29th of January 1976, Tracy Patient was walking home from her friend's house in Chilcot Road. She was heading back to her parents' place in Henderson. It was only a very short walk. I can remember it clearly. I can remember coming back. She wasn't home. She was about half hour later, I think, than she was supposed to have been. And Dad and I went out in the car, just went around Henderson in the town and just looking around and, and couldn't find her. It was early 1976. The Patient family had moved out from England two years earlier. Tracy was only 13. She had a younger sister, Denise, and an older sister, Debbie. We just used to hang out, just go around with friends, or, or quite often have friends around to our house as well, or all of us go down to Glendine, go to the, um, the milk bar, do you call it? Like, you know, we get your milkshakes and stuff like that. Go to the cinema on Saturdays, get the bus into the city. It was summertime, it was the school holidays. It was a Thursday evening and the weather was fine. Um, it was a large concert on at Western Springs with the international band the Doobie Brothers were playing. So a large number of people had gone to Western Springs and they were heading back throughout the evening. Um, there were people out walking their dogs. It was, a, it was a pleasant evening so there were a lot of people around. We had a bit of a problem getting home on time so we were grounded. Um, and I really wanted to go to the Doobie Brothers concert and I nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged at mum. And in the end, she'd sort of said, oh, they said, oh, okay, you can go. Um, and obviously couldn't then sort of turn Tracy down if she wanted to do something. She wanted to go to her friend Lynette's. So mum said she could go. So basically that evening, and that's the last time I saw her, we were, we were walking up the road and that was it. Tracy never made it home. The following morning, her body was found dumped in the bush up in the Waitakere's. She'd been strangled with a stocking and her body discarded in the bush. She's only 13. And then the next day in the morning, can't remember what time it was, Mum and Denise and myself were sitting in the living room. Denise was on my lap. And Dad came home. You could see he was really upset. And, and Denise said, when's, when's Tracy coming home? And my dad said, she's not. And we, we, what, what do you mean she's not? And he said, someone killed her and just burst into tears and I can just remember my sister, you know, she was only sort of eight, just going, no, no. Um, and she, she says she remembers that me, me taking her into the bedroom. I don't really remember much after that, to be honest. There was an inquiry base set up at the old scout hall there in the middle of Henderson and they carried out an extensive number of inquiries. People in the community who were known um, to police and also lots of nominations from the public of people they suspected could be involved. Despite the police looking at over 850 suspects in the last 40 years, the offender has never been identified. This person has never been brought to account for this horrendous crime. It's one of, well, a regret of my life, obviously, that I was nagged my mum to go to this blinking concert. But um, when she said, when she said bye, I never, because she was walk, just up, walking up the road slightly behind me, and I never turned around. I just went, oh, okay, bye, see you later, and went off. And I just so, so regret not turning around. You know, you, you, looking back, how are you supposed to know that's the last time you're going to see somebody? 
Tracy's family feel like this only just happened yesterday. Despite 40 years passing, for them it is very real. It was their daughter, their sister, and for her life to end like that, to be snatched away from them, um, as I say, it still affects them to this day as if it only occurred yesterday. Our driveway, you, you went up a kind of almost a slope to get to the driveway, and I just keep looking, and I remember saying to someone, I just keep thinking, she was a bit of a practical joker, and I, I, like she's going to just come walking up and go, ah, I fooled you, you know, it's a joke. And then over night time, you go to sleep, you wake up in the morning, and it's like about two seconds before you realise, and it's like, oh, you know, you think you've had a dream or, or something. Just awful, so, so hard to cope with. So hard to cope with. I'm pleased to say that the investigation into Tracy's death has been resumed full time. We have had eight police staff working on this since mid-November. We are following up on new information and also reviewing information from the original inquiry to try and identify this offender. We would love to be able to solve this case, to catch Tracy's killer, to let the family, after all these years, know what happened to their little girl. On Sunday, um, well, Mum and Dad have asked if I will go and lay some flowers. Um, where Tracy was found. I've never been there. Um, I know in this day and age that's what people do if someone dies or has an accident. You sort of put flowers around that, but in those days you just didn't do it. And to be honest, I don't think I could have done. But that's what I'm going to do. What they did was wrong, it was very wrong, they took a child's life. However many years it's been, this person's had a, a life, he's probably got a family, you know, he's running around happy as Larry, he's got off of murder. Time can't diminish or minimise this terrible crime. Tracy was only 13 years old, she would have been 53 now. She never got to be a mother, a wife, and what happened to her was absolutely horrendous. I'd love to be able to say, like they do, I forgive you, I don't forgive that person at all. I hope that person's had an awful, awful life. I really do. Sorry. I hope they've I hope they've thought about it, if not every day. I hope it's been on their mind. Um, and I would love for them to give themselves up. Someone out there knows who was responsible for this. Loyalties change over time and we want that key information to come through to us. We've got an 0800 number, so 0800 000 111. We want people to phone us. My younger sister Denise, who was eight when Tracy was killed, has um, written something here that I'd like to read out to you if that's okay. The saddest thing for me is that I can't remember my sister. Whether that was due to my age when it happened or my memory blocking out the part in New Zealand, I don't know. And to put that down on paper really hurts because I feel so guilty that I can't remember. I do have memories of the night that she went missing and my dad coming in crying, telling us what had happened. Since it happened, I've always been frightened of the dark. I vaguely remember going out one time in the dark with my family after it happened and shaking terribly.
Over the years I've had terrible nightmares of someone trying to get me and always waking up just as they catch me. Because of what's happened to our family and how it's affected me, I've tried not to be really overprotective of my children and I'm still fighting a battle with myself when they go out, especially at night time. And I hope, as we all do, that something comes of it. Regards, Denise Marjoram. The person responsible for this crime should come forward and speak to the police. It's been 40 years. It was a horrendous crime. I don't know how they can live with themselves. They need to come forward and get this off their chest. They need to call the police, come into the station, phone the number, make contact with us. That person should come forward. Operation Tracy, call 0800 000 Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as well, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the murder of teenager Tracy Ann Patient. Now a warning for this week's episode, viewer discretion is advised. I cover the unsolved death of a child, so if this in any way upsets or triggers you, I would suggest skipping this episode. The murder of 13-year-old Tracy Ann Patient has been one of New Zealand's most sensational cold cases. In the 40 years since her death, investigations have involved a mysterious signet ring, anonymous callers, and a six-digit number that nobody knows the meaning of. On the night of Thursday, January 29, 1976, Tracy went to a friend's house in Chilcot Road, Henderson. Tracy was due to be back home at her parents' house in Delwood Avenue at 9.30pm. Tracy's friend walked her halfway home, and they parted at the intersection of Great North Road and Edmonton Road at around 9.30pm. She set off up Great North Road and the last known sighting of Tracy Patient was outside number 295 Great North Road Henderson. She was only five minutes walk from her home. However, exactly what happened to her that night isn't exactly known as there is conflicting accounts of where she was seen and who with. And we may really never know exactly what happened to her during the time that her friend left her and the time that her body was found. The following morning, a man walking his dog found her body 15 kilometres away in a bush close to the Watakiri Dam car park on Scenic Drive. The coroner ruled her death as being due to homicide by strangulation by a ligature. Tracy had been strangled with her own stockings wound tight with a twig at the back of her neck. Her signet ring given to her by her boyfriend and items of clothing were removed. The ring wasn't found with a body or lying around the surrounding area. There was no evidence of a sexual attack or defense wounds. Tracy was described as a sensible girl unlikely to accept a lift from a stranger and a leading theory was that she had been abducted, which I strongly agree with because of evidence I shall get into later. 30 detectives led by Detective Inspector Bruce Scott followed a number of leads, quickly looking for a cream or white 1967 Ford Cortina seen slowly following a female jogger near the police station of Great North Road just before Tracy arrived there. At one point in the investigation, police considered that Tracy may have fallen victim to an unidentified serial killer who targeted teenage girls in the 1970s. Mona Blades and Olive Walker, both 18, were also murdered in that decade. While there were similarities in these cases, there was no evidence which could conclusively link them to one another. They also sought a man said to have pestered three girls three nights earlier. A description and identical picture were published and the man was found, but he was later cleared. Now, there were 
are other significant clues in the case that are still puzzling to this day, and they include that six weeks after the murder, an anonymous woman phoned Youthline saying she'd seen a blonde girl who she thought was Tracy on Great North Road with a man in a brown suit. Both got into a brown car that drove off just after 9.30pm. However, despite public appeals, the woman caller was never found. A Ford Thames van was seen in the area at the time that Tracy vanished. About 15 months later, a road map with Tracy's name written on it was found in an old Thames van. The van's owner was cleared and the police tracked down two prior owners, but the owner at the time of the murder was never found. Which strikes me as odd for two reasons. One reason, of all the names to have been written down on the map, Tracy's name was written on it, which leads me to believe that the killer somehow knew her or had some type of connection to her. Otherwise, how would he know what her name was and why would it be written down on a map that's inside of the van? Of all the names in New Zealand to have picked, it had to be Tracy. I mean, it could be a coincidence and it is circumstantial evidence because there's nothing besides the fact that a Thames van was seen in the vicinity and you've now got a Thames van with Tracy's name written on it. It could just be a coincidence, but I don't think so. I think that the Thames van was connected to it, but it would also lead to the fact that somebody knew who Tracy was. So it is circumstantial evidence because it may have something to do with Tracy's murder or it could have nothing to do with it whatsoever. But I'm leaning more towards the fact that whoever owned the van around about the time of the murder and the fact that the van was seen in the same vicinity, I believe that whoever drove that van that night was the one that killed Tracy. But then it leads to further questions of, well, how did this person know who Tracy was enough that he was able to write, he or she was able to write the name down on a map and why did, um, then the further question becomes why they write the name down on the map unless of course they knew who Tracy was they may have followed her or something like that I'm not too sure because since the person was never found we don't really know the answers to those questions the second thing that I'm curious about is I would have thought that the police would have been able to trace the license plate number and found out who owned it around about the time that Tracy disappeared I know that this was the late 70s and there were no computers back then it was mostly a card system or something like that however there would have been some type of record I mean I don't know that the police did or did not trace it. I mean, for all I know, they could have, I mean, I know they traced it back to two prior people who owned the van when they excluded the recent owner of the van. But I'm just wondering whether they may have hit a brick wall and maybe they got to a person and then they couldn't go any further with it. I mean, that sometimes happens. You're following a lead and then suddenly you can't go anywhere with that lead. It just stops at a dead end. So I'm assuming that the police traced the van back as far as they could and then they just hit a brick wall, which does happen in investigations. I mean, I'm just assuming that they would have traced the vehicle registration number or the license plate. They would have traced it back as far as they could. And I honestly think that's what the police did do and then they just hit a brick wall that's what i think happened they interviewed 600 suspects and as late as 1994 re-interviewed a suspect which led nowhere now here's where we get to the really quite chilling part of this story. On the 22nd of November 1977, a man, likely the killer, phoned the Henderson police station and he said, and I quote, listen, I'm not going to give you my name or anything like that. I'll give you information about the patient murder once and once only, end quote. He then described the ring being outside the rubbish bin of the urgent dispensary in Avondale wrapped in purple tissue paper. He further said, and I quote, take this number down, 126040. I will ring back on the 30th. End quote. That call became significant because when police went and searched the bin nominated by the caller in his phone call, they found the signet ring wrapped in purple tissue paper just like he had described, which was identified by Tracy's boyfriend as a ring he had given her. Now, because the ring wasn't found on Tracy's body, police suspected that the person that called was either the killer himself who had taken it as some type of trophy prize after he killed her, or someone who knew the killer but may not have wanted to get involved in the case for whatever reason. The caller, however, 
never rang back and they were unable to trace the caller. So whoever it was and whatever their connection was to this case remains a mystery. Police then moved on and spent a significant amount of time trying to solve the 126040 clue. I mean, detectives tried everything, including phone numbers, social welfare, benefit numbers, and military service numbers, but could never find out what the number meant. The case was reopened in 2016 and public responded with around 30 theories for the code. There are a number of great suggestions for the 126040 code and what it might mean. Some people on Reddit even suggested it might mean such things as the digits add up to 13, which is Tracy's age. Backwards it reads as the 4th of June 1921. There were approximately 40 New Zealand males born on this date, many who have served in the war and would have been 54 at the time of Tracy's disappearance. Assuming the police investigation was thorough, and I see no reason why it wouldn't have been, these have been treated as suspects and eliminated on opportunity and means. It is the same format as a New Zealand military service number 12 6040. However, this serviceman died in action in World War II. In terms of an alphabetical code, 1 equals A and 2 equals B, the remaining number do not correspond to the 26th letter alphabet, so that doesn't really work. There was also the suggestion it was a tattoo number. Apparently some ex-servicemen had their service number tattooed on their arm after World War II. It was known as the Dutch Dun or something like that. But none of those panned out. But the alphabet connection becomes more interesting if the code is read as 1, 2, 60, 40. In Hebrew, these letters are assigned numeric values. 1, 2, 60, 40 corresponds to Elf, Bet, Samak, Men, ABSM. This translates to I was lost, possibly a biblical reference to the parable of the prodigal son. He was lost and now is found, Luke 15, 24. The AB literally means father and alphabet. The S, Samak, refers to the never-ending circle of life, symbolized by the exchange of rings, hence the importance of the signet ring. SAM refers to drug, potion, medicine, and to heal. In Arabic, one translation is the name Bassam. This is the name of a famous Lebanese Druze military hero. It means one who smiles profusely. This could be a deliberate taunt to the police to catch a killer if they can. The problem is without a point of reference, the number could mean anything, from a license plate to a safety deposit box or bank accounts, points on a map to a house number or a lot number. The possibilities are endless. There is also the possibility that it could also mean nothing and be a red herring to lead the police down a dead-end track. However, there was also a new witness who came forward with a story about what he saw the night that Tracy died. So Gary Ross read of the developments with interest and for years he'd been trying to tell the police about what he'd seen in Henderson the night that Tracy disappeared. How he'd seen an older man leading a young girl along by the elbow, and for years he felt he'd been ignored. So first, what did Ross actually say that he saw? He remembered the evening very clearly. It was a Thursday, and he and a friend were in Henderson. Ross and his friend, who passed away years ago, were leaning against the parked car on the side of Great North Road. And I quote, While we were chatting, I saw a young girl being hustled along the road by an elderly, well-aged to elderly gentleman wearing a hat. He was holding her by the elbow. She wasn't panicking at all, but she looked directly at us as she passed. I think that was her, Tracy, that was being escorted away. I'm quite sure it was her that was being escorted away by this guy. Absolutely, I was three or four meters away from them. I've seen her photographs in the newspapers and I'm quite sure that was her and it was about 9.30 at night and Henderson was virtually deserted. End quote. Ross says that the next day when he heard on the radio that Tracy had disappeared from Henderson, he rang the police. He said the person he spoke to took down his details and said they'd be in touch, but nobody rang. He tried to pass on the information several more times over the years, most recently in 2011, when he saw that Detective Sergeant Murray Free was now in charge of the case. As they chatted, Ross figured out that he used to know one of Free's uncles through cricket. With that in mind, he thought he'd have more luck getting heard this time, but no. Quote, 
I've outlined what I'd what I'd seen, and he told me to come and see me. I'm still waiting. What's interesting about this account from Ross is that it is in complete contradiction to the last known whereabouts of Tracy that night. What Ross saw is significant for a number of reasons. It would appear never before have there been reports, at least publicly, of a girl fitting Tracy's description being led away by a man. Never before, at least publicly, have there been reports of a girl fitting Tracy's description in the vicinity of the Henderson shops that night. Remember that according to the original police accounts, she was last seen at the corner of Edmonton and Great North Road, and in the latest police account, she was outside 295 Great North Road. Both of these locations are several hundred meters east of where Gary says he saw Tracy that night. Now, according to the same article on stuff.co.nz, they contacted the police for an answer about why Ross was never interviewed about what he saw, or why none of this new information was followed up. And the police response was weird to say the least. What followed was a series of written responses from Detective Inspector John Sutton. At first, Sutton said Free had taken a statement from Ross, but later acknowledged it was a job sheet. A statement is generally a signed document in which a witness provides an account of what they've seen, whereas a job sheet is a police document in which an officer records notes from a conversation with a witness or other investigations undertaken on a case. This confirmed that police had never actually sat down with Ross to take a statement from him, a full formal account of what he saw. Why not? Sutton's response is as follows, and I quote, Detective Sergeant Free made an assessment on the information provided by Mr. Ross against the large amount of material provided by witnesses and gathered over the years. Detective Sergeant Free's assessment was made based on his vast insight of this case on information that Mr. Ross nor the public are privy to. Detective Sergeant Free has overseen the inquiries into the Tracy patient case for the past 12 years and has an intricate knowledge of the many hundreds of inquiries that have been conducted since Tracy was killed in 1976, including the timings of the confirmed last known sightings of Tracy. End quote. For the avoidance of doubt, Sutton reiterated that it wasn't the police didn't believe Ross when he says he saw a girl fitting Tracy's description. Quote, However, from the assessment of information from other witnesses who have reported seeing Tracy, we believe the female Mr. Ross saw was highly unlikely to have been Tracy. End quote. Later in the article, Stuff.co.nz claimed they obtained the job sheet document under the Official Information Act. In it, Free suggests Ross's memory about the night is unreliable. This is based on the fact he says Ross said in their phone call that he was in Henderson that night after training for the league team he was helping coach. 29th of January is the height of summer, and in 1976, summer sports and winter sports had a clearer demarcation. Free writes in the job sheet. Unless Ross was playing at a high-level pre-session training in January, would have been very early. Stuff checked with Ross about this. He told them the club he coached actually did have pre-season training at that time of year. And besides, he said that with the passing of time, he has always said it was either after league training or cricket, which is consistent with what he told Stuff.co.nz right when they first started dealing with him. Either way, the important point to him is that he was in Henderson that night. Besides, it seems an unusual assumption for Free to make, particularly when it when using it as a basis upon which to dismiss a potential witness in a murder investigation. The job sheet also captures Free's thoughts about what Ross said about trying to contact the police early on in the inquiry. Quote, I find it difficult to believe that if he had phoned the station with this information on day two of the investigation, that it wouldn't have been documented and attached to the file, wrote Free. Quote, he claims that he may have seen the victim being walked through Henderson by an older man, which would have been highly relevant, end quote. In other words, Free didn't believe that Ross had rung them and dismissed the possibility that it 
whoever took that original call had made a mistake. Surely in those early days of the investigation when calls flooded in, it's not impossible that something might have been missed. In actual fact, that isn't actually far out of the realm of possibility at all. It has happened before in other high-profile cases overseas. For example, in the Ivan Milat backpacker murder investigation, when lead inspector or investigator Clive Small asked the help for help in identifying the killer of those backpackers, one victim who, who escaped Ivan's clutches, Paul Onions, rang in with information, and because they were swamped with information, his account wasn't straight away realised. It wasn't until much later in the investigation they discovered his phone call and figured out they had an A-grade witness. So these things do happen and no one's perfect. And if what Ross says he saw was highly relevant at the time of the disappearance, why isn't it now is my big question. So in summary, here's the police position. Yes, we've spoken to Gary Ross. No, we've never taken a formal signed statement from him. Yes, he told us he saw a girl fitting Tracy's description with an older man in Henderson that night. No, we don't believe it was Tracy based on what we think we know about her movements that night. Again, I find it hard to believe that they just dismissed Ross's accounts that evening. They also tried their best to discredit him twice. The biggest significance his account does is it places Tracy somewhere different than what was originally reported. Ross's final words on the matter were also very chilling. It is not something I want to forget. It is something that annoys me because it niggles me that they haven't done anything about it. The place was deserted. It's not as if you've got hundreds of people walking around the streets looking similar. It's highly unlikely there would have been two young girls of the same description in the same deserted street that night, which I tend to agree with. The odds of him seeing two different people in that same area around the same time are very slim to none. At best it was Tracy he saw, at worst it was a coincidence. The other thing I can't wrap my head around is why the police dismissed this guy's claims out of hand. Now there was another interesting twist in this case which was in 2010. A woman identified only as Rose came forward to claim that her neighbor's 21 year old son killed Tracy after he was released from prison. Rose, who was just 11 years old at the time of Tracy's murder, claimed that following Tracy's murder the neighbor's car was cleaned, repainted and then sold. Rose also claimed that she saw the signet ring belonging to Tracy in her neighbor's house and that she also heard a confession from the mother. Nevertheless, investigators said that Rose's testimony was not credible. Now, what is interesting about this is I actually found an online message board in which Tracy's sister talked about some aspects of the case, including this. So Tracy's sister Debbie wrote, and I quote in this uh, message board that I found. A couple of years ago, I was contacted by a woman who told me that she was convinced that her ex-neighbor had killed Tracy. She wasn't sure if it was the dad or the son, but she said that the wife slash mum found the ring in a box under the son's bed. She said that this woman showed her the ring and used to cry over it. She thought that one of the dad's son-in-laws might have been the person that contacted the police. According to my contact, the bloke used to abuse his daughters when they were young and she thought this might be their way of getting back at him. My contact said that he had a tattoo on his arm that she thinks was six numbers long, the uh, Dutch done. She had already been to the police before they contacted me, and I also told them about what she had said. They said they looked into her story, but concluded that she had an overactive imagination, even though she said she was prepared to swear in court that what she saw and heard was true. End quote. Following Tracy's murder, her family moved back to Britain. Her parents became the founding members of a support group named Parents of Murdered Children. Tracy's sister Debbie hopes the case will finally be solved and says what the killer did was unforgivable. Quote, what they did was wrong. It was very wrong. They took a child's life. However many years it's been, this person's had a life, probably got a family. You know, he's running around happy as Larry. He's got off with murder. I don't forgive that person at all. I hope that person's had an awful, awful life. I really do. End quote. Over the last 44 years, the police have investigated 850 suspects, but the case remains unsolved. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. 
Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. Milton William Bill Cooper was an American conspiracy theorist, radio broadcaster who hosted the show The Hour of the Time that opened with an air raid siren, commanding voices, barking dogs, screams and stomping jackboots. And he was also an author well known for his 1991 controversial book Behold a Pale Horse. 